Welcome, tender listener. Settle in, open up, and ready yourself for real moments from the heart. This is a people-sharing podcast for story lovers. I'm your host, Amy Liz, and I'll be listening tenderly with the best from the West. A man born and bred, two blocks from the Hollywood Strip, a graduate of San Francisco State University with a BA in film and a minor in marketing. He's got his sprawl all over Rumble Boxing, an awesome gym where he works as an operations manager and will be leading group fitness classes. He's been jabbing at mixed martial arts opponents as an amateur fighter, but 2023 is his year to maneuver the clinch and turn pro. When he's not training to kick ass, his creative mind and his passion for storytelling keep him motivated. The Beast from the East welcomes the best from the West. Drew Davis, the Hollywood kid. Thank you so much for having me, Amy. I love that intro. Amazing. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. I'm so grateful that you're here at the Tender Listener Podcast. And for full transparency, let's let everyone know how we know each other. Well, we are family. We are family. I remember, it was funny, I was thinking about this the other day, just how every summer my mom and I would come visit over in the Carolina, South Carolina, Myrtle Beach and spend our summer days there, like in the beach, just hanging out. Yeah. No, awesome memories. I was literally just thinking about that the other day. Yeah. There's always good memories with those trips. It was always such a good time to have you all visit and so special, which leads us perfectly into kind of what we're going to talk about today, which is just the inherent natural ability that you always had to be an athlete. Even as a little kid, you could come each summer and I could see that progression of functional skill get better each time, whether it was picking up a boogie board and being able to get into the ocean. You just came here with the gift to be athletic. So take us through a little bit of that sports journey, because I know you did soccer and I know you did football, but Explain to everybody, including me, how you knocked on the door of the MMA. So, I, yeah, just like you said, I've been playing sports pretty much my whole life. Soccer, baseball when I was four. You know, I'd always kind of dabble with tennis, lacrosse, basketball. I just anytime there was a competition or a sport I could get my hands on, I wanted to try it. I wanted to do it. You know, when I started playing football in high school, I, I really wanted to take that to the professional level or at least college. But just with my body type, I'm six feet tall, have a really fast metabolism, I'm like 165 pounds. You know, if I were to play any kind of collegiate football, I'd probably get hurt just from, you know, the growth that just how people develop as they get older, obviously. It's just like right. destined to get injured. So it makes sense that you can't play football. So let's do the next craziest thing. Let's become a fighter. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And you know, like. I needed an outlet when I went into college. Like I played mm-hmm. intramurals, intramural football, which was so much mm. fun, but I just kind of felt like ah, I need more. And something that was always kind of in the back of my mind was mixed martial arts. I remember watching my very first fight when I was like 14, 15 years old, completely blown away by the, by the, just watching it on TV. I, I thought, wow, like I've never seen an athlete so happy after a win. It's like, oh my gosh, like, you don't see that when someone's celebrating a touchdown, a goal. It's like, obviously, it's there's a lot of pressure. They put all this work in. When they come out victorious, it's it's almost like it's, it looks like an out of body experience to them. And I wanted to I wanted to have that. I wanted to know what that felt like. Mm, so 
you chased a high. So you said, hey, I know what it feels like to be a pretty great athlete and to have some W's, but I don't know necessarily if it's enough. And this looks like this could be a brass ring of just feel good emotions. Yeah. Like I, I just, I always kind of felt like there was something there for me to be a professional athlete, just needed to pick the right sport. Mm. And as soon as I started training, it felt like I've been doing it my whole life and, you know, just progress, just stayed with it, even though it's can be scary as hell. And sometimes, you know, you have really tough days in the gym where you just get literally physically beat on the best feeling in the world is, it is getting your hand raised at the end of a fight. There's nothing else like that. And if I could do that professionally as a career, I will go all in for it. <laughs> it. It's so motivating. It's so inspiring. I am so uplifted. I love to hear people really identify not just a dream, but just recognize within themselves that hunger, you know, and you just have to feed that hunger. And you are going at it with a multi-pronged approach. So Obviously, take us through that a little bit because anybody can go into a gym and start hitting a heavy bag, but mm -hmm. that's not really all of what has to go into the sport. It, there's so many facets that I'm not even familiar with. So kind of break it down for me and explain just the intricacy of what it takes to be at this elite level. Of course, it's it's chemistry. It's it's like there's a lot of different things that have to go into the recipe for it to work out mm -hmm. because of course you could walk into a gym and you could just be a sparring dummy for the coach's number one fighter for their favorite fighter. You know what I mean? Mm. I was very fortunate. I, you know, just found somebody on coachup.com and I was like, Hey, you know, I really want to try MMA or mixed martial arts. Like, can we meet somewhere? And the guy's like, yeah, let's meet at this high school. I think it was over in Dorsey or something down in you know LA. And I'm like, hey, this is really cool and all, but like, do you know anybody that runs a gym where we can be on a mat so I'm not getting grass burns and sunburns from being outside all day? He's like, you know what? I actually do know a guy. And sure enough, his name is Davis Chong, Grandmaster Davis Chong at a Musa Martial Arts Academy. Very, very fortunate situation. He also happened to be a block away from where I grew up. Wow. And he saw me come into the gym. The guy that I found on coachup.com was like, hey, I'm going to hand you off to Grandmaster Chong. He's going to he's going to coach you and look after you. And right away, we're, we're having a conversation. He goes, you have potential to take this to the next level. Like, do you want to do that? And I said, yes. And from there, I started training in a small gym. I was the only fighter there. Most of the guys he trains or most of the people he trains are actors Mm. or actresses that are getting ready for action roles or they're trying to learn choreography for fight scenes. So eventually he knew like, okay, if you're going to really pursue this, you probably need to find a bigger gym or a fight gym. And I found Dragon House MMA out of San Francisco, California, mm. oldest MMA gym in the city. And after day one, again, got absolutely destroyed by the pro and amateur fighters that have already seasoned and been there for a while. But like the coach of Dragon House, Zong Lo, came up to me, he goes, you're going to fit right in. We want nice. you. It was almost like a little audition. You know what I mean? Like it was an audition. I passed. Yeah. There's definitely what feels very protected, like a rite of passage a little bit in that yeah. sort of sport industry. It doesn't seem as like a main thoroughfare the way other sports work. 
There definitely yeah. seems to be a who you know, how you get started, who you get connected with, because it feels like it could kind of make or break that at any minute you could have turned left and it could have been over. A hundred percent. Just by the components that needed to kind of be in place for people to see your potential and for you to be with that right synergy of people who were at different levels to help you level up, as well as getting the coaching and the insight to give you your unique advantage. So tell us a little bit about that. What would you say is the Hollywood Kids signature unique advantage at this point in your amateur career? I would say the fact that I had a lot of one-on-one attention starting Mm. out at a smaller gym really benefited me once I got to a bigger fight gym, because once you go to one of these fight gyms, there's obviously, you know, you probably have 30 to 40 people that are all pursuing the same dream or the same goal. And with one coach, that could be really hard to get the one-on-one that you need Mm -hmm. to make sure your technique is correct, make sure you're doing all the right things. Because having that with, with Davis Chong to start, I mean, people tell me to this day, they're like, what do you do for your kicks? Like, how are your kicks so like, perfect and beautiful to watch. I'm like, I had my first coach literally make me drill a hundred times over, you know, put two chairs in between Mm -hmm. me. He's like, okay, you got to bring the knee up first and then throw the kick. Otherwise you're going to kick the chair. And because I had all that one-on-one attention, it, it, it's just the repetition of it just really stuck through. Even when I went on to a fight gym where maybe I didn't necessarily get all that one-on-one attention. So I would say start somewhere that's close to home, the smaller gym, the better. And then if you need to grow from there, you realize, okay, like I need to get challenged. I need to be not the best fighter at this gym. I need to be kind of in the mix of all these top dogs or whatever. That's like, I think the perfect path for, for you to take. Start small, work your way up. Yeah, that's key advice. I do like, however, that you said that you had these fundamentals sort of implanted from the beginning, like foundational skills. Do you go back and roll yourself into that sort of breakdown repetition pattern when you're learning a new skill or where you're developing? Is that part of your own muscle memory now as a fighter where you, regardless of who you're coaching, know enough to go, hey, I need to go break this down into a sequence of smaller steps to find that sort of like perfection in each one of those pieces. Cause this is the bonkers thing for me. When I watch any of it, it is so fluid, Mm -hmm. but it's about a thousand things that come together to make that fluidity happen. Yeah. So are you able to step back from a skill or step back for something that you're putting together in a defensive mode or or an aggressive mode and then break all those components down and really learn to execute each one individually? I've always been told if you can do the technique slow, then you can do it fast. Mm. A lot of people, Mm. once they learn it, they start throwing it really hard. They start doing it really fast. It's like, okay, you don't have that muscle memory yet. You have to develop muscle memory. So you don't even have to think about, like it'll just natural, natural reaction. You'll just do whatever it is that you need to do in that situation. So I always, I love, I mean, drilling is, can be really boring. It could, it could take up an entire practice, but I think it is a hundred percent necessary. You know, they, the saying goes drillers make killers. And I'm like, yeah, 
And when I learn something new and I don't get it, I want to practice it over and over and over and over again until I feel like, all right, let's go to the next thing. So yeah, I think just this starting slow and just taking your time with each technique. Because like you said, in MMA, there's so much, but there's a fluidity to it once you practice it enough. And I want to get to that with anything. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that you started with somebody who had maybe like a choreographed fight background as well, too, because that in a way is part of the thinking. And I know that probably lifts a page out of your filmmaking experience and your capabilities as well, because you understand how to put together a scene and you understand how to build a story. Mm -hmm. And coming from that sort of different shift in your brain and bringing that perspective, has that given you some insights to, you know, what makes you the type of fighter that you are? Oh yeah, for sure. It's interesting. It's funny you say that because it is, it is an art. It's mixed martial arts. So you kind of see somebody's personality kind of Mm. come out of them when they're competing. I definitely, now that I'm more comfortable with competitions, because at first I was like terrifying and I'm like, okay, I'm just in here to survive basically. (laughs) But now that I've like been able to step in there enough times, I've had like over 10 competitions now. So really it's just like, okay, all these feelings, all these emotions, just roll with it. And now I'm almost like expressing myself a little bit when I'm on that mat, you know, like, yeah, creating a story like, okay, we're just, we're popping the jab out. We're popping the jab out. We're setting up the plot. Okay. Head kick, boom, climax, doom, guy goes down, finish mm. the end. You win. You know, I, I was like, yeah, that's like perfect situation, yeah. but like, obviously you got to like build it up. You got to take your time with it. If you try to just rush to finish the fight or rush to finish the story, if you will, you might end up just mm-hmm. losing. You might end up walking into a punch. So yeah, there's, there's a lot of, I think a lot of experiences I had growing up, especially the creative side, has translated mm-hmm. so much to the sport in, 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 yeah. in different ways. I know when I was a high school athlete, that was a big factor for me. I had someone give me sort of like a sports psychology tip. It was a visualization technique. And literally when I was a goalie, a field hockey goalie, I would dream about the game the night before. Oh, yeah. And I would literally play the game. And I mean, how could you even play a sport with those many players on the field and, and those many variables, but I would see exactly what I needed to see for myself in regards to my role on the team. And I would just dream myself doing those saves, you know, whether it was a stick save or a hand save. And I really credit that to a lot of my sort of sports success. It was a really phenomenal thing. And it does translate over to other things. So how much do you use some of that aspect as well, where you kind of like really get into your brain and give yourself a mental overdrive with it? I'm really glad you mentioned that because it is visualization is the most important thing I think you could do for yourself preparing for a fight and not just thinking about all the good things that you can do. Think about like the worst scenarios you could be in Mm. really help. Because if you end up in that, in that situation, you've already thought it over a hundred times in your head. You already know Mm -hmm. like, okay, react. I'm like, oh, I'm not looking up at this guy who's throwing punches at me. Oh, wow. Like this really sucks. I should have thought about being in this position or situation. And yeah, it's, if you can, if you can already live that moment before it happens, 
you're, you, you have an advantage. And I think having a creative mindset, having a film background, having that imagination really, really helps. It helps so much. That's great. It's so awesome to hear you say that because I think it's untapped in a way. I, I think more athletes do need to describe themselves as artists and, you know, in a way, not just athletic performers, but performers in a sense, because I think there's so many components that go into sports that is very, very choreographed, for lack of a better word, before yeah. you even get on the, the field. I want to go back to football because that was a love of yours and that was a, a big high for you in high school. So take us back to some of your highlights. Give us a little story or two from when you played football, what made it so great at least for a foundation for being able to suffer some punishment and get up the next day and put that helmet on and do it again. <laughs> yeah. I would say that the, the biggest thing, well, I, I mean, I love football, just watching it growing up. But when I was able to play, you know, my first year in high school was pretty, pretty horrendous. Our very first game I ever played, we lost 72 to zero. And yeah, Ouch. it was bad. It was really bad. Players were getting dropped left and right. I was terrified because we were playing against a really good school. We had no business stepping on the field. But, you know, the, it was just, it was like, you know, that was like a learning lesson. You know, it was okay, tough start. And then, you know, stayed with it, kept working with it, kept working with it, got injured a bunch, tore my ACL, had other injuries throughout. But by senior year, you know, when it all kind of came together and, you know, you're scoring touchdowns and, you're winning games. It really taught me that, you know, don't quit on something, you know, because then you might never get to experience these amazing emotions that you get when your team has won, you know? That winning feeling is definitely something that's a theme in your life. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Is it senior year or is it your junior year that things start to go sideways physically for you? It was actually freshman year, tore my oh. ACL. For okay. my ACL freshman year, sophomore year, right before sophomore year is when I was diagnosed with Crohn's disease. Okay. So it was much earlier than I remember. So mm -hmm. take us through that a little bit. You're building this sort of sports, you know, resume, hoping mm -hmm. to move on and upward in your life, you know, carrying a football. And just as things are coming together, you aren't feeling great. Yeah. And it started with weight loss, right? You started to notice that you were losing some weight, even though you're like working out in a training room and. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Just, we were going into the off season. I was lifting weights. I never lifted weights before until freshman year of high school. I was finally starting to put on some, some muscle, put on some weight, starting to get bigger. And then, you know, just one day I kind of noticed like, hmm, I'm, I'm really, really tired. Like I can't even walk my dog a block without feeling completely exhausted. Arm strength, I was, I'm throwing a football. I could barely throw it 20 yards. I'm having trouble with weights that I usually could lift no problem. I'm stepping on the scale. I'm losing weight. Probably, I think I lost about like five pounds a week on average. I mean, it was dropping drastically. Wow. So my, I'm telling my mom this and of course, she's like, we need to go see a doctor right away. Yeah. We got blood tests. We did all the tests and you know, it, it was a serious issue. We, we knew something was wrong. 
And how long did it take for that process? You're in a big city. L.A. has some of the best medical care in the world, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't happen overnight. You guys don't get answers. You and your mom go for medical care and it's a puzzle. Yeah, I think we really got to see kind of our care of the character of my primary physician. Mm. Unfortunately, was not impressed. My mom was pretty upset with how things were being handled. They kind of felt lackluster. You know, my mom, my mom has pretty good instincts when it comes to this kind of stuff and she knew something was wrong, but yeah, our, our primary physician was not really on the, jumping on the ball for that. So I think about after three weeks, I was already down. I was down like 25 ish pounds by that point. We had finally got to see a, a gastroenterologist who also was very like kind of almost neglect or just not really taking into consideration how concerned my mom was kind of like neglecting it. It's like, oh, he's fine. He's fine. We're just going to take a look. Like, no, he's not fine. He lost 25 pounds in three weeks. That is not normal. He's a, he's a 15 year old kid, you know, lifting weights and playing sports. Like he should be growing. It's, and it's the exact opposite. And you're still consuming big calories, right? You were still able to take food in. No. Were you still eating the same or did that stop too? I I was trying to eat the same, but my stomach would hurt. I mean, like horrible, horrible pain in my stomach, dry heaving, like can't hold food down. I had a hard time sleeping, but the, the, the pain in my stomach, I mean, a couple of times, I had to have my mom like rub my back because it felt like back spasms, intense back spasms. But really, I'm I'm thinking it was like my intestines that were like Mm. freaking out or something. I, you know, it's just that's how it felt. I just felt like really intense back spasms, canker sores in my mouth, in my throat, nose. So, Mm. you know, liquid diet. But of course, when you're on a liquid diet, you're not getting enough nutrients. So you're just... Yeah. And it could be, like I said, by, by, by week three, I was completely anemic. I mean, like I literally couldn't do anything. Mm. And although I'm trying to try and eat the same, trying to eat what I was doing before I I knew I'm like, no, this is, this is impossible. Literally it's, it hurts so bad to eat eggs and rice, you know? Mm-hmm. So even though the initial consult with the GI wasn't great, they set you up for some tests. Yes. And they, subsequently set you on the journey to determine that you had the Crohn's. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I had to, first I had an MRI, which was horrible because you have to drink about 32 ounces of liquid dye so that mm-hmm. the MRI can see your intestines. Okay. Right. Of course, you know, when you have nothing in your stomach already, you're hypersensitive. So anytime I had a sip of dye, I pretty much like vomit it throw it up into, into like a blue bag or like one of those bags that the nurses gave me. The emesis bag technically yeah, is what uh, it's called. <laughs> yeah. Ugly. I think I was there oh, for horrible. about, I think I was there for about two, two and a half hours. And so my mom was like, you got to drink this dude. You got to just like clog your nose and drink it because we need to get you in this MRI because they couldn't MRI my intestines until I drank it all. So, right. you know, finally after two and a half hours, I, I managed to get one of those 16 ounce, bottles in me and the technicians like, let's just get you in. Like, let's just, let's just do this. So I was in that MRI completely, you know, submerged in it. Right. So I'm, I'm looking straight up and it's just like, you know, a little claustrophobic. I was in there for like an hour. Yeah. And they discovered, I think 18, 
inches. I think it's 18 inches. It might've been more. 18 inches of my colon was just covered in ulcers. And uh, we did like a colonoscopy later on and they're like, yeah, you got Crohn's and we're going to, we're going to start giving you the medication to, to counter it. Wow. Yeah. But it was a five week process before finally being officially diagnosed. Right. So what's the turning point for you? You get the diagnosis, you get a prognosis as to how to move forward. Mm -hmm. And when do you start feeling better? From the time that you started having symptoms to when you finally were able to eat normally again, how long was that window? Oof. As soon as, soon as I was done with that colonoscopy uh, on week five, they said, we're going to give you prednisone, which is a, a intense steroid that helps with inflammation. Mm-hmm. As soon as I started taking prednisone, th- th- I could feel it like, okay, like my diet, my, my appetite's coming back. The doctor said, you can eat whatever you want. Like, go for it. Let's just be careful. Like, don't go too crazy, but like, enjoy your subway, enjoy your pizza. So that was like music to my ears, obviously, after being on like a gluten-free, dairy-free diet leading up to that point, liquid diet at some points, being able to eat whatever I wanted after like five and a half weeks because of the prednisone was like, was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. What a gift. Like it really makes me appreciate food. Let me just say, (laughs) I I, I used to be a really picky eater before that happened. Anybody will tell you, my girlfriend, mom, any, all my friends, you put food in front of me, I'll eat it. I don't care what it is. I'll enjoy it. <laughs> at least you'll have a few bites. At, at least I have, I have something. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Which is also somewhat ironic because you have a food service background as well. So you were, you know, working part time mm-hmm. and have worked full time in the restaurant business, you know, where you get the shift meal, where you're around tons of food and it's just... It's the worst when you have a stomach problem and you're around food and you can't eat. Mm-hmm. Or when a customer says to you, hey, what's good on the menu? And you're like, well, I haven't tried half of it. because, like, Well, everything. But I can't eat any of it. Yeah. <laughs> right. During this time, all my coaches in football were saying, you need to eat more burgers, more donuts, Davis, more milkshakes. You need to put on more weight. So, you know, I was enjoying I was enjoying that diet. So I definitely when when that all got cut out, you know, all the, like the heavy foods and the steaks and the bread and everything. I was Mm-mm. a part, a part of me was missing. A part of me was missing. So I was the happiest kid ever when I came back. Oh, I bet. So how does your diet look today? Like in this sport that you're attempting to go pro at and you're committed to how much does nutrition really factor in for you, knowing that you have this pre-existing condition, this disease process you have to manage Mm-hmm. regardless of what those protocols are for you medically, which, what do you eat on a daily basis? What's that calorie intake? And what are you doing to you know keep yourself fueled and keep yourself balanced? That journey in itself has been a huge learning curve because a lot of times when you step into this sport and you're supposed to cut weight or you're supposed to make a certain weight class, you know, you're kind of told almost to like not eat too much. Like you're supposed to just eat a mm. couple things here and there just to give you enough to train. But with somebody like me, exactly with my history, there was no way that I was just going to like completely like starve myself. Even though I did, I, I've mm-hmm. had to do that. I've done that in the past to cut weight for competitions. Mm-hmm. I knew I, after that one time, I knew there's no way I could do this every time. If I want to turn pro, I will literally have long lasting health issues far after. I just knew this can't be good for you to starve yourself and dehydrate yourself for months. Like there's just no way. So I actually, I hired a dietitian, 
that that are located out in Australia. They work with pro athletes, UFC fighters. They work with athletes that have autoimmune diseases like me. And their biggest thing is, you know, they want to get enough data so they know, okay, we need to cut less sodium. We need to cut more, less, we need to cut out the carbs for you to make your weight class, but we still want you to eat calories. Mm -hmm. Calories, you need calories if you are training hard. That Mm -hmm. is plain and simple. Like if you are training two practices a day, two hour sessions each, if they're both really hard sessions, you need the calories or else you're not going to perform. And Mm -hmm. it seems like common sense, but it's just funny because a lot of people think that you have to do the opposite because you need to make a weight class to come to compete. Mm -hmm. It's like, I can, I can have the height advantage at the weight class that I fight in, but also still be able to show up to practice to get better. And that is just, Mm -hmm. it took me a couple of years to get to that point. But now, you know, I keep it clean. I have, I still have cheat meals. I still have desserts, but I would say if I'm, Mm -hmm. if I'm doing two to three practices a day, I need 2000 calories at least. Yeah. But you do at this point know what flares you up a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. You have probably a no-go list. Like that's a no-go for me. You know, even though you will eat whatever's put in front of you, you probably have a limit. Like I can probably have five bites of that before it goes sideways. Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah. Like, yeah. With the desserts, especially I have a sweet tooth. I I definitely have to check myself because Mm -hmm. I could eat an entire dozen of Crystal King donuts if it was in front of me. Right. And then that whole sugar train doesn't, doesn't bode well. No. For the intestines. Yeah. Definitely yeah, not. I, definitely not. And alcohol too. I definitely had to watch my alcohol intake for sure for training yeah. purposes and also just health, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's sugar. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's kind of an empty calorie, although you can afford that expenditure because you're working out so much. So it's not mm-hmm. like, it's that detrimental, but it does throw the chemistry off a little bit. Oh, hundred percent. Because of the dehydrating factor. Especially that. Yeah. I mean, if I go out drinking, like heavily drinking with friends for a night, I'm out for two days. Like for two days, I am recovering from that one night. And when I have fights coming up, there's just no way. There's no way I'm going to set myself up like that. You know, like I have to be smart about that. Yeah, that's good. You're at a great work environment that's really supportive of this overall athletic goal. So when did you start at Rumble Boxing? I started at Rumble Boxing in November of 2021. So we're coming up on a year Yay. of me being there. Yeah, it's it's one of the best jobs I've ever had. It's 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 really just refreshing. I mean, I've loved I loved a lot of the restaurant gigs that I worked at, but there's just, you know, there's obviously there's times where it's tough days. People are rude. You're tired because you're on your feet all day. You have to work even after closing because there's some couple that wants to, you know, enjoy their day an hour after closing. You're like, okay, man, I've been here for like 10 hours. You know, I don't know how to tell you this. I'll sound like a jerk, but like get out. You know, it's like you have right. days like that. I've never had a bad day at Rumble. Everyone's high off endorphins. So they're all freaking happy because they just had a great workout. Yeah. Yeah. And on top of that, everyone's really supportive. Everyone's really supportive of each other. It's a group fitness boxing gym. So it's like when they found out that I was fighting, 
they all want to come watch me. And, and I feed off that energy when, when they're in the crowd, you know? So it's yeah. just, I love the people I work with. I love the environment I'm in. Definitely. That's awesome. I'm glad to hear that you have that kind of extended community to give you sort of that uplift because what is it going to look like for you to turn pro? How does that process even that machine even get started? I mean, obviously you've put your dues in, you've had 10 amateur bouts, right? Am I using the right mm-hmm. language? It's about? No, don't, yeah, yes. Okay. And so, but what's, but do you just flip a card over and say, hey, I'm a pro now? I mean, how does it work? So you want to have a conversation with your coach, first and foremost, say, hey coach, do you think I'm ready? Or a lot of times they just come to you. Your coach will say, you're ready. Because a lot of times you're not going to think you're ready. You're going to want one more amateur fight. You're going to want a little more practice. But I think you just have to really trust the people you have around you because they probably know it better than you do or they see your skills better than your own self. Mm-hmm. And so you just have to tr- trust them. And if your coach thinks they're, that you're ready, I believe you have to get your license to compete professionally. You might even have to spar in front of a commission. I don't know if they do that anymore. I think they used to have it. So, okay, you know, you sign your paperwork, then you know you're, you have headgear on and you spar somebody else that's also trying to get their, their license to turn pro in front of the commission. It's like, I don't even know, like a round. And then they're like, okay, yeah, yeah you're ready. I don't think they do that anymore. Though I think it's just, you literally just sign the paperwork. Boom, you're certified a professional. Your record starts at resets to O and O. So whatever your record was, whether you're a 10 and O as an amateur, O and mm. 10 as an amateur, doesn't matter when you're pro, you reset and you will have that record for life. And that record nice. will determine what promotions are going to want to sign you because you're essentially, mm. you're essentially like, what is it? An independent contractor, right? Mm-hmm. Like I'm a free agent trying to find a promotion that's going to pay me the money that I think I'm worth or promote me mm-hmm. in a certain way that's going to get me sponsorship opportunities or get me more money or get me more exposure. So once you turn pro, you can't go back. And it's important that you're you're ready to take that next step. So does that mean that you need a pro fight? Do you set that up, a pro fight? You have to set that up for yourself. Do you manage yourself? My coach is also my manager. So gotcha. some people some people have will go to agencies to get their manager to, you know, they'll sign a deal with them with an agency so that they have them picking their fights, them kind of setting them up for their next career moves. Mm. But of course, you have to be kind of aware that there is like a percentage of your paycheck that's going to go towards them. So, you know, in starting out in, in mixed martial arts, you're all, you're practically losing money. You, you don't make a lot of money at the start of your, of your journey. That's why I'm like, right. okay, I have a great job. I can live my life substantially with my I guess, quote unquote, career, but I also have my passion and my dream that I'm trying to make a career on the mm-hmm. side, which is funded from my career, you know, or funded. Yeah. Right. You know what I mean? So it's a big leap of faith. It's a big leap of faith. And not a lot of people make it, but also not a lot of people try. And I'm going to damn for sure. I'm going to give it my all and try my best until the wheels fall off, you know? Right. That's so awesome. It's, I'm so proud of you. I think it's great. I know it's nerve wracking. 
for family members to experience this (laughs) indirectly from the side, the the few things that I've watched, it's, it's so great, but at the same time, it's, it's scary. Mm -hmm. And, you know, obviously you're very confident and I feel like you wouldn't get into it and be doing it if you didn't have the skills or the wherewithal in which to really keep safety at the forefront. And that's a factor that I'm really quite curious about is how much does the sport look at, you know, safety in regards to how about is refed or how you go up against somebody, what the matchups look like as far as like, Mm -hmm. other than weight being a factor, what are some of the other criteria in which you're going to get in the right space with the right person that's really not going to, you know, be lesser than you or more than you, you know? Yeah. Well, definitely safety wise, let me start with the training aspect. When I first got into Dragon House, mm-hmm. when we would have sparring night, our coach would say, pick your victim. Mm. So when I got started, it was wars. I mean, literally, we're trying to kill each other. We have headgear on, of course, and we have 16, we have bigger gloves, so it's harder to do some damage. But I mean, we would try to kill each other every Wednesday night. You know what I mean? And <laughs> as the sport has progressed, so has our training methods. And so training is a lot safer now. I feel like I've always been big on, it's called touch sparring. So it's like, okay, we're keeping each other honest. Mm -hmm. Like we're still kind of, we're still laying a little bit of pop, but we're not, you know, putting everything into it, trying to hurt our training partners. I hate training like that. Mm -hmm. You have to, you have to experience that at least once per like leading up to a fight. But I think, you know, if you hurt yourself or you get you know, somebody else hurt. All right. Well, now I have to wait till I recover or wait till that person recovers so I can start training with them again. And that is, that just seems counterproductive, right? Right. In terms of picking matchups, it's really important to know promoter. Like it's, it's, it's really important to have a connection with the promoters because there may be a promoter out there that is trying to set somebody up to be the next big Mm. thing. So they're going to use somebody else as a stepping stone for that fighter. Mm. So it's really important to have a good manager and a slash coach that knows that that promoter is not going to screw you over with some lopsided matchup, you know, and sometimes, and sometimes, sometimes it's just pick of the litter. You don't know what you're going to get. Right. Just, just prepare, prepare for everything, you know, and I can tell you what, like my very first fight, I ended up fighting a guy that trains with the Diaz brothers, which they are UFC Hall of Famers, UFC legends. And I held my own. But I'm sure if I had known prior, I probably would have gotten my own head a little bit and been like, oh my God, I'm training with somebody that is like training with UFC caliber guys. And I probably would have just like, yeah. you know, psyched myself out. But knowing that afterwards, I was like, oh, you know, like I didn't win. I, I ended up losing that fight, but at least I held my own. And I grew and learned so much from it. That's all we can really do, I guess, at the amateur level is just is just take what you can get and, and just hope that the, the, the hard work brings out the best best version of you come fight night. Right. It, and in, I love that growth and learning. And this is a great time for me to ask. So we have a little segment in the podcast that I like to call Tender Cues. I gave you a heads up in advance to give you some time to ponder and prepare. And just to refresh your memory, we call our truth question, the gut punch. This is some 
uh, event in your life, a reality that you had to learn how to accept because it really kind of hit you hard. The next one is called our love question. It's when you had a moment where your heart space was just really filled up. And then our last one is growth, a learning or a level up moment, our mind melt. So you pick one of the three tender cues and share a little bit about that moment in your life, that kind of passage of time where you either had a gut punch, a truth moment, a heart space moment where you were filled with love or an ultimate mind melt where you really had to grow and level up. I feel like we talked a little bit about Crohn's, a little bit about my MMA journey. I'd say the love, what I felt after my last fight when I won, when I had everybody from Rumble come out, I had my brother come out, I had my friends come out to watch me. When I won that fight, you know, it just, it, it just almost seemed like out of a movie, like it was too perfect. Everybody was there cheering for me. And it kind of made me reflect on just the hard, the tough start that I had with fighting, the tough, the tough moments I've had in life. And it really felt fulfilling to know that these people have been there since day one. They didn't care if I was, you know, they, they, they didn't give up on me and they kept supporting me and ended up being the greatest weekend, the best week of my life. I mean, I'm, I'm only 26, but that was hands down the best week of my life, spending, sharing those memories with all those people and seeing my brother especially be there and, and tell me that I was an inspiration to him when he was always an inspiration to me. It's just, it's just incredible. And of course, like my girlfriend who's been there since day one, Nicole, mm-hmm. I was almost, I was happy for her. I was like, look, you know, I know this is really tough on you too, because I'm not always like the most fun person to be around when these competitions come up, mm. but you stuck with me. Mm-hmm. And, and this is why, this is why we do this together. So we can share these memories with everybody and unconditional love, you know? Yeah. I love that. It's totally unconditional. And I, and I, it's a, such a perfect example of, of that kind of heartfelt moment where it's really indelible. It'll probably carry you to the next moment, to your next peak in, yep. in everything. And it'll definitely be there to comfort you in the valleys when, you know, you can source it, go deep into the well and draw on it and really pick up that energy from that moment and let it really be there. And I think that's really special. And I'm, I'm so glad that you have that because what else is it for? Yeah, right? Exactly. Because right now you haven't gotten a payday as an amateur. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like you said, you're spending money. You've invested so much time. You've invested so much money. You've invested so much energy. And at the end of the day, if this was the moment, if this was the biggest moment you'll ever get out of the sport, will that have been enough? Mm -hmm. When you see all those people that are out there supporting you, all it makes you want to do is prove them right. Because a lot of times Mm -hmm. I'm, it's such a mind game. I feel like with a lot of sports, but with MMA, especially if, if, you know, if you're mentally strong, it will translate into your, your game and there's a lot of times where I go through doubt, where I'm scared. Sometimes I'm mm. in my car and I just have to like take a deep breath because I'm thinking like the worst possible scenarios, the consequences. Yeah. But when you remember those moments where these people are showing you unconditional love, it just makes you want to prove them right. And that just fuels me so much. Yeah, that's great. Well, let me give you a little moment 
that I like to call the gush and blush because I'm so grateful to you to have agreed to be my first podcast episode number one guest. It's so generous of you to coordinate with me like this, to really have a leap of faith into my unknown, not really knowing a lot about what I've been working on and developing since I completely changed my life and left a traditional career to go find myself on a spiritual journey and come back to the real world and want to serve at my highest good and serve others as best as I possibly can. And that is the goal of this podcast, to really reach out to people who might be listening, who need a little bit of inspiration. And I really am so grateful and I'm so proud of you. And I couldn't be more amazed. You have just done so well for yourself. It's glorious to see. And I'm so, so thankful for the contributions that you've made today in sharing your story, both your journey as an athlete as well as your journey as a human being and overcoming the odds that just got dealt to you and you persevered and were resilient and have made it work so you can really follow all your dreams. I'm going to turn it over to you so you can shout it out and give up some love to anybody you'd like to mention or anybody you'd like to call out who's really given you that unconditional support. Of course, definitely just my friends that I met through San Francisco State that I'm still keep in touch with to this day that I still live with to this day. I love them so much. They're my best friends. Nicole, my girlfriend for being my rock. Everybody at Rumble, my work for showing that unconditional support. Always being, always looking out for my best interests and and truly, truly just accepting me for who I am and and yeah, I'm forever grateful for them. And my mom, of course, my brother for always supporting me, especially my mom. You know, I know this was a bit of a shock when I started taking on mixed martial arts and it definitely wasn't ideal, but she knew that I was going to continue to pursue it anyway. So I, I love her so much for letting me pick and choose my path and my destiny. I love you, mom. And thank you so much to you, Amy, for letting me be on here and sharing my stories and and giving me this platform. And I think it's so cool what you're doing and just completely, you know, doing, doing your thing, you know, and, and I'm, I'm so happy for you. I'm proud of you as well. Thank you. Much love. Yeah. I want to tell everyone out there in the tender listener community that from my heart to yours, shine your shine, share your brilliance and that your stories matter. And please get in to the Hollywood kid Get on the train, because once he turns pro, we'd all love to be out there supporting you and cheering for you and wishing for your big W as a pro fighter in 2023. So keep us posted. And everybody out there, thanks so much. 